The year is 1995. At a middle school in Milton, Ontario, the familiar screech and howl of a dial-up modem. I was, for the first time in my life, on the internet. I had no idea what it was going to do, not only for the amazing people that I've met, but also my photography. So today, we are going to be talking about all the amazing things that the internet and the digital age has done for film photography. Welcome to the Classic Camera Revival, coming to you from the Greater Toronto Hamilton region of Ontario, Canada. If you don't have gear acquisition syndrome now, you most likely will by the end of the episode. Hey there, folks, Alex Lokes here, and welcome back to Classic Camera Revival. And despite the fact that a whole bunch of us are still stuck in the past, we can't deny that the internet has done an amazing thing for film photography, no matter what anyone says. It has brought people together from all over. I mean, take a look at us. We are we are recording today through Zoom, and we have people in Milton, Oakville, the Eastern Townships, and Toronto. And of course, everyone around the world who listens to us. And we have the internet to thank for it. But long before the internet became a thing for the everyday user, people had to seek out their information elsewhere. And for that, we have to turn to John Meadows. Yes, I am the uh, by far the oldest guy on the show, the oldest, uh, oldest host. And so I'm going to take you back. The year is 1975. I'm a teenager. I started getting into photography. And so you want to learn. You want to get past being just a snapshot shooter, learn to develop your own film, learn about cameras, learn about developers, all that kind of thing. Where do you go? There is no web to go to. For me, my memory is that it's the era of the magazine. I'm thinking of magazines like Popular Photography, Peterson's Photographic, Modern Photography. There were a few others, but those were the three that I would wait for every month and try and save up enough money to, uh, to buy because the photo magazines of that era were actually useful. They had a lot of practical information like articles on how to develop film or reviews of developers or reviews of cameras, shooting technique, lighting technique, you named it. And that's where we got a lot of our information. A friend of my father's told my father once, hey, I've got all these old photography magazines. Do you think your son might want them? When I found out, I pestered my father so much, he basically said, okay, we'll go over and get them today. And I had about 60 or 80 copies of popular photography, like back issues, and I was in heaven. Now, of course, also, uh, in addition to magazines, we had these things called books. Anyone here heard of books? You'd have to go to the library or, or buy them. And of course, to buy books, as a, for me as a teenager, that was rather expensive. Couldn't really do that. And the library, the selection would be sort of hit and miss. There'd be some, you know, a couple of good books. I would take them out of the library repeatedly to a point where I think I could have them memorized but that's all there was. And in addition to uh, the books, and then I think I would say that the camera store of the 1970s, I think had as a whole more knowledgeable staff. Like you could go in on a Saturday and just uh, you know shoot the breeze with the, uh, the people who worked there and you'd get an awful lot of useful, uh, useful information. And speaking of information, one thing that's changed like today, like compared with today, is that when you bought your little box of uh, Ilford film or Kodak film uh, back in the day, it would actually come with a proper information sheet that you could take out of the box. It would list development times for all the most common developers. And I remember when they stopped doing that in the, I think, late 1980s, they stopped doing information sheets and people were ticked off. But that was the information that uh, that we had. Now, I compare that to today where the online resources are absolutely limitless and uh, so many of them are free. Uh, a couple that have come to mind specifically are the massive dev chart. Can you imagine like... I can't really tell you what a gold mine that would have been in the 1970s because that there was no, even in print, there was nothing that comprehensive. 
Like that's totally unheard of. It would have been a miracle. And the other thing that comes to mind is the uh, is the Butkus camera manual site. What a resource. And again, back then, to find a camera manual, you were scouring secondhand shops, asking around. And the odds are you uh, you wouldn't find one unless you could find someone who had the camera and still kept the uh, the manual. So among all the sites, like there are sites for every brand, every kind of camera, every kind of film, every kind of technique, like there are dedicated sites for Kavanaugh, dedicated sites for shooting strobus techniques. It's all there. It's all free. And sometimes I think we don't realize just how good we have it because I hate this to put on the, in the olden days hat, it was much more of a challenge then that it is, uh, that it is now. Oh yeah, that is, that is so true. The amount of resources that are just readily available online is mind blowing. And yeah, I've, I've opened up old film boxes and seen those data sheets. It's like, oh, perfect. That's exactly how I process this film. <laughs> At least Ilford, it still puts the information on the uh, inside of the box. And uh, so does Silbera, actually, which has saved my butt. But the next thing that needs to be done before you can actually start sharing your photography online is you need to digitize it. And it's too bad we don't have uh, Trevor Black with us tonight because he could tell, it, tell us how it was done over the wire back in the 80s and 90s. But um, these days we have a lot better options and there's no better person on our call today than Mr. James Lee. Uh, thanks, Alex. Yeah. So um, if you're like me and probably like most folks that are in into film photography, you certainly uh, accept and understand that there is a real coexistence between digital uh, and film photography, uh, because that's generally how we share our work these days. Um, you know, you Hey, there are still a handful of purists around that um, make contact sheets, uh, make prints and share it the old fashioned way. They send it through snail mail or they put it in albums and they share it with people. But, um, you know, as time goes on, it becomes a lot more difficult to do those things. So, you know, at some point in film in film photography, you're going to have to ask yourself, well, you know, how am I going to, you know, get these images, these were typically reversed images uh on my piece of film how am i going to look at them and you know see the fruits of my labor so the first step obviously is is scanning now there's a couple different sort of two categories of approaches that you can think about with scanning and that's really you know dslr scanning which i must say personally i don't do um i've uh, i've seen dslr scanning um done and um, i really think it has quite a few merits particularly if you're a uh, a 135 shooter or a very prolific shooter uh, with a lot of images to scan. Uh, you know, there's lots of uh, lots of new uh, cool tools that are available to do that, like uh, Negative Lab Pro. I think Lomography has one. There, there's there's a lot of them out there, and in my opinion, from what I've seen, they're all really good. Um, you know, you'll need to get yourself a light source, a light table. Um, a camera stand and uh, and basically you shoot away and 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 you use Lightroom and um, uh, you basically set Lightroom up to invert the images from negative to positive and it's really really fast. Um, I remember visiting a good friend of the show uh, Brian Caparici uh, a couple years ago and um, <clears throat> you know he showed me his uh, his setup for. Uh, um for dslr scanning and i was like holy smoke that is incredibly fast so once you get it set up you know you line up your image and in, in, in the negative carrier click sucks it into lightroom automatically uh you know he's got a, an action that that automatically uh inverts it and he did a roll of 36 exposures probably in i don't know four minutes uh, whereas my uh, my flatbed scanners that I have, I um, um, I have two very high end um, scanners. I have a uh, an Epson 10,000 XL, which is a 13 by 19 flatbed scanner. Um, one of those scanners will probably run you about four or five thousand dollars, so not um, not a small investment, uh, unfortunately. Um, and then I have another. Um, uh, smaller uh, sort of tray flatbed scanner, which looks a lot like a 
uh, a Nikon cool scan type of form factor, which is the Plus Tech Optic Film 20. Uh, both of my scanners, um, uh, or pardon me, my, my flatbed scanner will scan sheet film uh, up to 13 by 19, of course, but I generally only shoot four by five. Um, and of course, my Optic Film 120 will shoot any of the, up to any of the 120 formats. Um, depending on what you're doing. Now, if you are shooting um, a lot of four by five, like large, like sheet film and things like that, I would really recommend going the flatbed route. And you don't need to get a big giant 13 by 19 scanner. Uh, all of the Epson scanners from the V600 onwards are excellent tools. And, and there's no, no need to uh, buy the latest and greatest when it comes to scanners. If you're on a budget, it's not going to hurt you that much. You know, you might lose a few features here and there. Yeah, the resolution won't be the highest possible resolution. But some of the things that you need to think about when you're scanning is what am I going to do with this image? Am I going to be printing this? Am I going to be, you know, putting this to my inkjet printer? Am I just going to be publishing these on the internet? Am I more of like a, uh, a Facebook and Instagram share kind of person, website, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and, and maybe you don't print. So if you don't print, you don't really need a very, very high resolution uh, scanner to, to make prints. But if you are printing, you're going to want to optimize, not maximize, but optimize uh, your scanning resolution. So, and that generally differs um, depending on the format of film that you're shooting. So, uh, it's basically kind of uh, inversely proportional. So the smaller the aspect of film, the higher resolution you're going to want. So for example, uh, 35 millimeter uh, negative, you're probably going to want to scan anywhere between 3,000 and 4,000 um, DPI. Uh, and then it goes down from there. So maybe a medium format like a 6x6, 6x9, 6x8, etc., 6x7. You know, you might be around uh, anywhere from as low as 900 and you can go up to say 1600 or 1800. And then of course, uh, you know, you get into four by five or sheet film, you can go as low as 400 DPI to 600, 800, 900 in that range. And it really depends a lot on your film. I wish I had a simple answer or rule of thumb for you. I will give you a rule of thumb um, that kind of generally applies, which you kind of have to understand your scanner, but which we'll, we'll talk about in a second. Um, so depending on what you're going to do, and I always scan to print. I like to print my images. Um, you know, if it's black and white, I'm generally going to use my enlarger and I'm going to do darkroom prints. But sometimes you're in a rush. You just want to get it out there. Uh, maybe you're going to do a zine. Uh, maybe you're going to do a photo book, whatever, something like that. You're going to want some fairly high resolution images to uh, uh, make sure that you're giving your printer an adequate file to work from that's got enough resolution and sharpness to make a good quality image on paper. So generally what I like to do, these are my rules of thumb for scanning. Uh, if I'm not sure, if I haven't scanned the film stock before, and different film stocks behave differently with resolution, it's really only something that you learn with experience and, you know, looking at the output and understanding what you like and don't like and playing around. It doesn't cost you anything to scan over and over again, so you can definitely play around. I do recommend that. Um, and I, I, what I basically recommend is you can actually overscan your images. And what I mean by that is you can crank up your resolution on your scanner to its maximum. But what happens with that is it creates digital artifacts and it takes a long time to scan and it creates very, very large files. So I recommend if you are using scanning software to put that, that resolution somewhere about 80 to 90% of the maximum scanning uh, that the scanner will do um, for that image size. So let's say you can do a, uh, uh, your scanner will scan say 6,000 DPI for a 35 millimeter negative. I would maybe set that to about 4,000 to 4,500 DPI. I wouldn't scan at 6,000. Um, if your scanner can do 48-bit scanning, especially if you're printing, that's really where you want to pay attention to that setting. If, you, if your scanner does 8, 16, 24, 48, always go for 48. 48-bit scanning scans more color detail uh, and tonality difference if it's black and white than the smaller resolutions do. And of course, if you do finish your work in either Lightroom or Photoshop, 
your those pieces of software can handle 48 48-bit images. Now, for my workflow, I like Silverfast. There's lots of people that are probably cringing right now, going, "Oh, Silverfast! It's clunky." 100% acknowledge it's clunky. I am not that experienced in ViewScan or Epson Scan. Uh, I know Phase One makes a really cool scanner, but uh, I already blew my money on the hardware, so I can't afford their software. Um, but uh, if you use uh, why I like Silverfast because it has a really cool, efficient workflow once you get it set up. So I can set up templates uh, with uh, for my 35 millimeter, my six by six, my six by seven, four by five, every single format, I have it all set up. So when I do a pre-scan, I have all the little windows there already, and I just have to tweak them and move them around. I always scan in 48-bit uh, with, uh, with Silverfast. And I use their, their slider to uh, adjust the resolution that I want. And I can copy those settings in Silverfast to the rest of the frames on my roll if I want to. Uh, I do some adjustment uh, with the software. So if I do have an image that I know is underexposed or overexposed, I will make that adjustment so the scanner either outputs less light or more light. So when I'm going to edit that image, I have a better starting point. And I also... My output is never JPEG when I scan. It is always TIFF because I my workflow involves development, scanning uh, to 48-bit uh, TIFF files, importing into Lightroom, doing my raw adjustments in Lightroom, and then going and doing my JPEG conversions. And if I'm going to do any retouching, I'll do that in Photoshop. Uh, but that's generally how my workflow uh, works. Um, you can do, you know, Anything that you like to do and, and what works for you. Um, you know, some people don't like to, to touch up their images too much. They want to, you know, they just want to get them scanned, get them out there and, and do that. And, and they want it to be quick and quick and dirty and they're happy with it. So you can easily output the JPEG if you like. I'm a little bit of a stickler. I grew up as a professional photographer, so I'm a little bit more picky about finishing my work. But if you're a hobbyist and just want to get it out there and you're somebody that's you know, more inclined to just kind of show it as it is, then, hey, go for it. You don't need to get it too complicated. There's lots of lower priced scanners out there. Uh, you don't have to blow your brains out. You can get a very good used V600 for under $500. Uh, and you could buy a new VA50 for, I don't know what they're going for now, $1,600. Um, I really like the uh, the PlusTech Optic Film 120. I would I would suggest people to buy something in that plus tech lineup. It's a smaller footprint. Um, and uh, provided you're not shooting sheet film, that would be what I would uh, recommend or go DSLR. Yeah. Whatever you do, have fun, digitize your images and share them. Absolutely. And um, I used I used Epson Scan for, uh, for many years. It's a great place to start. Um, and it has a lot of amazing... Um, automatic features, especially for color correction. You can get a good JPEG image right out of the scan software. The one thing I will say, if you are trying to install this on a new computer and that new computer comes with Windows 11, Epson Scan will install, but it will be missing the two crucial buttons in the professional mode. That is preview and scan. But one of the programs that um, James did mention is ViewScan, and that is what Bill Smith likes to use. So, Bill, take it away. Thank you, Alex. Um, okay, let's roll back the clock to 2011. I was a Windows user. Then I switched to Mac. I was using Epson products, and while I was a happy Epson scan user when I was on my lovely Acer laptop, when I switched to my MacBook Pro, the uh, Epson scan software for Mac uh, was lacking. So I kind of did a straw poll amongst the hive mind of the film photography community. And it was either Silverfast, which at the time was costing a significant pile of money, or ViewScan. I went the ViewScan because it was the software of choice for the Smithsonian in the Library of Congress. So if these institutions were using it, it's like, okay, let's roll with it. So I rolled, I installed on my MacBook Pro, 
Yes, it took some time to get the workflow dialed in. Like James, I scanned TIFF and then was pulling into Aperture at the time when I had it, when Aperture was still a thing. And when that went away, I switched over to Lightroom and it's pretty much the same deal. I've seen Silverfast, like screenshots of it. ViewScan is a little more, how should I say, maybe user-friendly. My suggestion, if you're doing that, use the generic profiles, especially with color film photography. Because they have, they have profiles for old Kodak films, they do not necessarily line up with what's currently on the market now. And then you're doing all uh, you're you're fighting in Lightroom to correct the the weird ass color shift. So go with the generic color settings if you're using ViewScan. So just go generic color film done, and then that way, then you can sort of adjust your warmth or cold and you know the usual crop. Remove the space junk and you're away to the races, and then you convert to JPEG. Um, I do have a question for James, though, uh, in regards to the plus tech. What's the workflow with that compared to, say, a flatbed? Because I'm currently using a V600, and it's sort of like at some point, you know, it's, I'm going to wear it out. <laughs> sure. Uh, so uh, this that I'm holding up, this is a, a, a negative carrier for a plus tech scanner. And... Um, this, of course, it's hard to see on the podcast. If maybe if you look through your phone, you can see what I'm talking about. I'm just kidding. Uh, this is a negative carrier for my flatbed scanner. My flatbed scanner takes two of these, so I can scan um, two and one and a half rolls of thirty-six. So it's just going to take you longer in the sense that you have to feed. Um, uh, so let me describe what I'm talking about. The uh, the uh, plus tech scanner will scan three frames at a time in one tray for a 120 uh, for a six by six 120. Um, and of course, if it's six by seven or larger, uh, it will be two at a time. So it's just going to take you longer to scan. Uh, whereas the um, uh, the flatbed scanner that I use, I can scan nine six by sixes. Uh, pardon me. 18 six by sixes in one scan. Um, uh, so it's a lot, it's a lot faster. It's just because it's a larger scanning area. Uh, one of the things that I, that I did want to mention, because you brought up color and I actually forgot to mention that with Silverfast, it, it actually has more current, perhaps, I'm not sure what, uh, what Epson scan or ViewScan has, but Silverfast also does have lots of older film and new film color profiles in it. So it automatically removes color casts. And with uh, with Silverfast, it has. It, it, if you order this, and you can order this from Silverfast for your uh, for your scanner, and what it is, uh, it's it look it's a negative. It's a it's a it's a color negative. Uh, pardon me, a color positive um, uh, slide basically that looks like the color bars on your TV, and it's got like all the different um, you know two hundred and fifty six different colors. And it's called IT8 calibration. And what you do is your scanner scans this, and then it creates a color pro profile for your scanner uh, through Silverfast software to match color. So when I scan in color, there's no screwing around. What you see is what you get once you calibrate the scanner. So uh, scanner calibration, I forgot to mention, very, very important uh, step, read your instruction manual, um, read your software that you're interested in getting, do a little bit of research there. These are some of the reasons why I prefer Silverfast. Yeah, it's a little bit more clunky. It's a little bit more complicated, but I feel that I get uh, better results, or at least I have better control over the results that I get. That's really good to know. One last question regarding plus tech. Uh, you can scan 35 millimeter with that machine as well? Yes. And how many strips at a time? Two strips at a time. Okay. And two strips at a time with one, two, three, four, five, six frames. Okay, so it's just like so 12, frames, 12 frames at a time. So double that of what I can do with my CoolScan 5. Yeah, exactly. 
<laughs> yes, yes. The joys of working IT. Well, if we could all afford drum scanners, then hey, life would be good. Yeah, but, but then uh, we'd all need Windows XP machines floating around still. That is true. <laughs> yes, and system can't see it cards. Yes, yes. But thankfully... That's scuzzy for all you non-nerds out there. Ah, <laughs> uh, but probably again we've the internet in general and being able to post stuff online is something relatively new who here remembers geocities okay so so for those who don't know geocities it was one of the original places where people could really build their own web presence when you had animated gifs and MIDI tracks embedded on your website. And it really was one of the first real internet communities. And probably what came out of that was what people call Web 2.0 or user-generated content. And one of the first big ones, especially in regards to photo sharing, was Flickr. And it's a community that I'm still a part of today. And one of the best things that came out of it was the groups and being able to join groups. And when I started shooting film in, in a major way at the, um, at the end of high school and joining Flickr and finding a place to share these pictures and photos, I came across the film photography podcast who can really be described as the great as the granddaddy of, of CCR and, negative positives and embrace the grain and and all the other amazing film photography related podcasts out there and it was it was really great because not only did Flickr provide a place to see and meet up and talk with other amazing photographers who shared the same passions passion for film photography and just keeping keeping the energy going um, it was an amazing source of information, being able to search for for images and and find that information that was once printed in magazines. And we're going to uh, touch back on um, touch back on sorting through that information later. But just I just want to shout out to all those all those great people who started these communities. So well, actually, it's not long ago. With was it two thousand and nine? Yeah, that's long ago. That's long ago now. Um, yeah, I think the FPP came in in 09. Because when was your um, Kodachrome walk there, John? It would have been around 2000 and, well, it wasn't 10. It would have been the year that uh, Dwayne's was just starting to wrap up their uh, Kodachrome processing in Kansas City. Oh, so that 20, definitely would be 2010, 2010 09, 010, 09, 010, like yeah. Around that, a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. A couple dec a decade or so now. Mm, absolutely. <laughs> Jeez. I, I remember that too. I remember when Facebook was just for college students. Um, but while many people see Flickr has um, had its day, one of the most growing and popular sources for film photography, both for instruction and inspiration, is now YouTube. And it's funny that we have so many amazing film photography channels and people on it um, that use digital to actually film themselves and use Premiere and other film, non-linear film editors, movie editors to do things. And while I'm fairly new at YouTube still, I really enjoy it. We do have someone who has a lot more fan base and that would be Jess. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Alex. Uh, yeah, my fan base is growing. It's uh, 
It's fun. Um, yeah. So, I mean, YouTube, love it or hate it, it is a fantastic resource for both educational and inspirational content. Uh, you can find anything. You want gear reviews? They're there. You want point of view, like through the viewfinder videos, walking through streets of Prague? That's there. Um, you know, travel videos, uh, film comparisons, you know, all that stuff. It's all there. Uh, so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to run through kind of a few of my favorites. Uh, that way, if you're not used to the YouTube space, then you'll have a few places to start off. But of course, everyone's going to have their opinions on what they like, what they don't like. So don't use my list as like the exhaustive, all-knowing YouTube list here. But a few of my favorites, uh, starting off with the one of the big names, Ilford. Uh, they have fantastic YouTube content. Not only do they already have a really big online community through their own website, uh, through articles and showcasing artists and stuff, um, they also have a big YouTube channel. And they, you know, their educational stuff, uh, Darkroom Guides, which they recently brought on Rachel from Sunny 16 podcast uh, to host some of those. Uh, those are some really, really educational videos. Like I'm learning a lot about working in the darkroom. Um, and as well, the more inspirational side, uh, My Film Story is a great series showcasing a lot of um lesser known photographers. Uh, so it's a great way to get to know a lot of different people. Um, Another channel that I absolutely love to watch is Kyle McDougall, uh, again, both for the educational and the inspirational content. Uh, you know, he, he does all kinds of film and scanning demonstrations, uh, but he'll also do travel videos and some more like personal storytelling kind of stuff. Uh, and also with Kyle, what's great is that you can reach out and sometimes ask him like, hey, I'd like to see a video on, you know, this film. Can you do something? And he might actually be able to do it. Uh, so if he can, he, he does do a lot of that stuff. So that's also a really great way to keep connecting with the community. Um, and I mean, the list can go on and on. Art of photography. I mean, Ted Forbes, <laughs> I have been watching him for so many years and he's I know he does a lot of digital stuff as well, but he's kind of like a little bit of my hero because he's just got so many subs for a photography space. It's so impressive. And because he's just so entertaining to watch, um, you know, he's got all kinds of tutorials, uh, but I've also learned a lot about different artists from him. Uh, he'll take out his favorite photo books and walk you through them. Um, and one of my favorite series he does is called the artist series, where he sits down with different photographers and, you know, sometimes in their own home and walks through their process and, and their artwork and stories and stuff. And it's it's his lesser watch series, but it's really, really fascinating. Um, ben Horn's another one that, you know, changed, he actually changed my <laughs> photography in the woods. Um, you know, Matt Marash is amazing. Lena Bessanova. Uh, Matt Day. I mean, you know, you can't mention <laughs> YouTube and not mention Matt Day. Um and even like something like fixed cameras, uh, you know, it's maybe not the most exciting channel to sit there and watch, but you can learn so much about fixing your camera. Uh, that's, you know, as techs are getting a little harder to find, we might have to start turning towards fixing these cameras ourselves. Um, you know, and even a channel like um, Allie's vintage camera alley, you know, she will teach you how to replace mirror foam. She fixes old brownie cameras. Uh, you know, she makes me want to get a brownie camera. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, like that's, that's also really inspirational. Um, and then, you know, there's all kinds of really great people like Karen Majoka, her channel makes me want to move to Germany. Um, you know, Joan Michelle, she makes ridiculously creative, wonderfully weird little mini movies, uh, sometimes on Super 8, uh, which is both extremely inspiring and expensive. So, you know, kudos to her for putting those out. Um, you know, Simon Baxter makes me want to move to Scotland. You know, anyways, the list can go on and on. And I'm not even mentioning all the people that I really, truly love to watch. Um, but that's a good start, I'd say, for just about everyone. Um, and, you know, like, it's greatest point and also kind of maybe sometimes it's downfall can be the comment section. Um, some people 
have actually had to turn their comment sections off. But what I have found really, really great is that it's allowed me to connect with a lot of people in a different way. Uh, people have contacted me through my through the comment section, not just to tell me, you know, if they like a video or not, but also to say, hey, I have that camera. This is what I do with it. You, you know, you could try that sometime. Or, hey, I would love to see a video doing some kind of comparison or something. And then we also tend to connect off in uh, off uh, YouTube onto like Instagram instead or even sometimes Facebook. And so YouTube has just like allowed the community to really open up and find new ways of reaching out to each other and new ways of sharing our content with each other. Yeah, I think it was it was actually Bill who pointed us towards uh your channel first there uh Jess. Yeah, yeah I it's true. It, it was the uh <laughs> The Granby series that caught my eye. Now, uh, my background is I was born in Montreal, lived there up until I was 12. And then my family moved to basically Southern Ontario back in 1980. But I still remember childhood trips to the Granby Zoo, Expo Rail on the South Shore in Delson. But it was like the landscape that Jess was documenting in the Eastern Townships. I I immediately caught my caught my attention. I was like, "Oh, she's killing it!" And then you know, you know, it's like then going out with an RB67, which isn't a light camera. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. It, it, I'm not going to lie. Of course, it's not a light camera, but oh, it is my favorite camera. Um, and the. The funny thing about, because uh, you mentioned the zoo, and so whenever I would tell people I was from Granby, they'd be like, oh, the zoo. And I'm like, no, I'm not from the zoo. <laughs> I'm from the town that has the zoo. Yeah. <laughs> that and restaurants, With, that's uh, what we're known fancy, for. Fancy <laughs> uh, neon signs. Mm. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. That was a big thing oh, back yeah. in the 60s, so. Now, the one thing that has definitely been a common thread through all of our all of our discussions is that of community. And Bill is just he knows his way around. He's um, he's a marketing expert, handles he's handled a lot of RPR issues on CCR with uh, amazing tact. So tell us, Bill, um, what are good things to look for with an online community? Oh, wow. Okay. Um, my experience with communities. Uh, let's roll back to the way back machine to the early mid zero zeros where APUG was pretty much the only game in town along with Rangefinder Forum. And if you're uh, one of those crazed mavericks, maybe Nelson Photo Forum. Unfortunately, the gentleman who founded that passed a few. Oh, God. I can't remember what several years ago. So it's like that sort of basically died on the vine, I think. And I think it comes down to it's any good community, regardless whether it's on dedicated discussion forums, be it like APOG, which is now Fotrial, and or the Pentax, the Pentax forum, if you're a Pentax shooter or an Iconians, it's or you're on Facebook, it's moderation. And I am one of the co-admins for the Toronto Film Shooters Facebook group. And yes, um, I'm going to be blunt. It ain't a democracy. We outline, you know, this is what we expect from our members and how to behave and how to represent, you know, because basically you are representing us. And if you behave like a jackass, well, yeah, you're dealt with it. And if you got a forum where the moderators aren't there, it can get pretty toxic pretty quick. Um, now going forward in history again uh, then you had forums even on Flickr as Alex touched on they, Flickr unfortunately is one of those platforms that became sort of the redheaded stepchild of Yahoo and, we, and if anyone in the IT space uh, in the tech space are familiar with Yahoo the saga behind it they're the ones that killed GeoCities yeah, pretty much. And they pretty well near killed Flickr too, because the people who bought, when Yahoo bought Flickr, I sort of wonder if they bought it with the idea, oh, this is a lovely shiny object. And then they just let it neglect it. And that's the reason why 
the communities on Flickr kind of died, which was a shame because I love those communities too. And I was an active participant, an active participant. Now granted, I still post to the communities because people still look at stuff, but they're not as outgoing as they used to be, but I'll circle back to Flickr in a second. You've got Facebook, which is now the 9 million pound gorilla in the, in, in the, in the ecosystem. Cause you've got, just about every, I don't know how many, I don't even belong to all the film photography groups. Maybe a fr- I'm only a fraction of the most stuff that it, you know, interests me and I feel comfortable being there. And that's the main thing you want to feel comfortable in that group. And, and you go from there. And then of course, then you've got like, again, platforms like YouTube where I met Jess and we kind of connected there and we brought her eventually into the CCR family t- uh, as we are today and then we've got, yeah, Man, and we got Instagram, which is a weird little beast because it was, it's really a photo. It started off as just like a, a photo sharing platform for smartphone photography. And then it eventually morphed a wee bit. People kind of figured out how to, I guess, jailbreak the platforms so that can post directly into John. Uh, so people, it's it's sort of become a large community for film photographers, even though loading it can be a righteous pain in the ass on occasion. And then when Facebook bought it again, it's morphed even further. Uh, they're focusing more on video and reels, which is, you know, if you're a photographer, it cuts both ways. And again, some people have, you know, the kind of sort of, how can I say Instagram may not be working for them like it used to. And some are even migrating back to Flickr. So it's it's kind of a weird mix. But the thing with Instagram, it's more, again, the communities within the comments. And again, there are people doing Instagram lives, you know, which are sort of like real, I got to say, rough around the edges podcasts, like Merlin Boissano does one. Uh, a whole bunch of people do them, actually. Uh, and it's sort of built a community around that. Uh, as where it's going to go next, uh, Clubhouse was sort of a thing, but I don't think it's really gone anywhere. So, again, you'll find us where we are, Facebook and Instagram. <laughs> you know, I think one of the things that I find with communities is they they seem to reach like some kind of tipping point where you know everything's in balance. You've got you know you've got your naysayers. You've got you kind of your sort of negative perspectives on things. You got your very positive perspective on things. You kind of have your balance neutral in the middle. In the middle, uh, and and it it seems to work. Like there's like this happy sort of symbiotic thing that goes on, and then the groups get big. And more people come in, and then the more people that come in, um, I don't know what the motivation is, but it just seems to me like they just feel like they have to comment on something um, just for the sake of commenting. And it, it can really make a group deteriorate very, very quickly. Like there's, you know, in every in our world that we live in, like the amount of negativity that I've seen, particularly in the last two years, it just seems to be accelerating and accelerating. And, you know, people are uh, being contrarian for the sake of being contrarian there. You know, they just, they, they just want to argue for the sake of argument's sake. And, and that's unfortunate. Um, and not to say that you shouldn't argue healthy debate, of course, is, is what, is what keeps a community current. It's how you learn, but that should be the objective. The ob- objective should be to the outcome that you want with healthy debate, I think exactly. is to learn. And, you know, part of that, you know, what I, yeah. And what I think, you know, it's like, I find that like, especially, and I don't know if it's true and my evidence is really anecdotal, but I find that when somebody is new to say film photography and, and they're asking questions, um, I often see, and it frustrates me that, you know, people are giving them incorrect information or out of context information. That's probably part of the nature of how the communication happens in these groups. Right. You know, my advice to those people is look, we don't know the value of anything before we start it. Right. We have a presumption of the value that it's going to give us, whether or not, you know, you're out 
for a photo walk, taking a stroll, or you're working on a a 52 role project, you know, whatever it might be, you don't know the value of it until you actually start doing it. So you actually start exploring it. And I can tell you my progression as a photographer, um, I learned that the unknown is where I learn the most and where my best work comes from. You know, I, my, you know, I think the, the best advice I could offer any photographer, whether or not it's digital, uh, analog, or both, or whatever, is your creativity, your outcome lies on the other side of your own fear. It lies on the other side of your curiosity, right? It, it's about taking a step into something unknown. So don't depend on what other people have to say, um, on how things should be or what's worked for them, find out what works for you, you know? Because if you follow your own curiosity, you're charting your own path. Yes, you can use the influences of other people, that's great, you know, but bear in mind, the unfortunate thing about the world and sort of social media, it is given a platform for everyone, and myself included, and all of us on this podcast, uh, and like everyone, we now have a platform for our own agendas, you know, and we have to really be mindful as any podcast or group or person that has an audience, we have to be mindful of what we are putting out there and what the impacts could be. Now, look, it's film photography. We're not putting men on the moon. We're not landing planes. We're not doing open heart surgery here. So the impact is whatever, right? It's not the end of the world, but I, you know, one of the things that I fear about a lot of the stuff that I see happening on the whole plethora of film photography pages is it's steering people in a direction that they themselves are not driving. They are allowing themselves to be driven in directions without just Mm. facing the fear, doing it, going, having fun. It doesn't matter if you like Leicas. It doesn't matter if you like box cameras. It doesn't matter if you like Holgas. Who cares? It's your money. It's your time. It's your mind. It's your imagination. Absolutely. Do what and makes you happy. To, to the same point, one of the most important things that you can do, especially when having the guts to ask a question on any sort of social media platform, is being able to discern good information from bad. And it really comes down to the idea of, of taking a look at all the answers that people are giving you. If multiple people are giving you the same general answer for something, then there's a good chance that that's the right answer and that's the one you should listen to. And maybe, just maybe, it might be time to uh, go uh, go back to the library and uh, find that old book on photography or go on to a used used go to and go into a used bookshop or go talk to a local community college see if see if someone there has a book and it's go like oh yeah well most of the people are saying exactly what's in this book so it must be right because unlike the internet anyone can put anything they want out there it doesn't make it right it doesn't make it wrong and as james says i have taken inspiration from a ton of people. I don't think I would have ever souped TMAX 100 in D76 one-to-one if it wasn't for Dwayne Polku on the FPP. I would have never tried shooting HP5 at 200 and souping it in PyroCAD HD or picking up a Penstax spot meter 5 if it wasn't for Matt Marash. And it's that idea of finding those trusted voices in any community that that know what they're talking about who have made mistakes and going out there and going like okay if they can do it i can do it and you may not always like what you get and you may find something new i mean everyone was saying oh for orwo un 54 d96 stock six and a half minutes well, I did that and I hated it. So I did it for six minutes and I much, and I liked it much better. Does that make my way right? For me, yes. For you, maybe not. 
Maybe you want to do it for five and a half. So yeah, it's it's about sort of trusting your gut, trusting trusting the majority a lot of the times. Again, it's discerning, it's that community in the comments. It's yeah. Going with the flow is not a bad oh. thing. You know, like it's it, it's not a bad thing. And and you know, like this whole notion of sheeple and stuff like that that we see just because you're following an example that worked for someone else like i mean it's just yeah it's look it's film photography guys it's you know yeah. it's a hobby yeah. for most people enjoy it the way you want to enjoy it remember tons of people went and followed daguerre and napice hundreds of people followed fox talbot Hundreds of people followed the next person, the next person, the next person. Well, I'd like to tell you something. You might be that next person. You, the listener. Not any of us. We're, we've already followed people. It's your turn to lead. Yeah. I've already burned enough of my pennies <laughs> on film photography. <laughs> so true. And other screw ups, of course, because that's just what life well, is. That was a whole other episode. <laughs> yeah. Happy mistakes. Absolutely. Well, that about covers it for this episode. Again, thank you, everyone who continues to listen to us, continues to interact with us. We love you. We love the community that we have built, um, both among our listeners. Um, and the people whom we've interacted with in the past. Again, I point to Flickr. I point to APUG. I think of it because, again, I met, yeah, the Toronto Film Shooters grew out of APUG and CCR grew out of the Toronto Film Shooters. I met Bill Smith. He was the other film guy in a parking lot in Oakville, Ontario. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, in front of a Absolutely. <laughs> um, John Meadows, I met you at the very first Toronto Film Shooters meetup. James, I met you at the Milton um, Camera Club. And Jess, I met you through YouTube. So everyone has met everyone in many different ways. My name's Alex Lokes. Get out there, stay safe. Test negative, be positive. This is James Lee. Get out there, be kind to each other, respect each other's opinions. And you know what? At the end of the day, just go do it for yourself. This is Bill Smith. Stay cool, shoot tons of film, and again, be nice. This is Jess Hobbs. Uh, whatever you do, yeah, grab your cameras, get out there, shoot, have fun. And if you don't find community immediately around you, spread out look online uh, reach out to people you never know who could be your next best friend out there i have met so many amazing people online including all of you guys on this podcast with me and it's just been a really great way to get to know a lot of people that i wouldn't have otherwise but most importantly just have fun and take lots of photos this is john meadows would i compare all the resources and tools that the digitals has uh, made available to film photographers today. I compare that to the 1970s. In the words of Cardi Simon, these are the good old days.